Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 182. We're recording this on January 23rd of 2024. Welcome back. This is the second episode since the relaunch, and I've already seen many hundreds. I haven't actually looked at the, the numbers yet. We had a bit of an issue with Apple not updating the feed because it was dormant for a little while. Uh, that's been fixed. And so everybody is back on board for the Photo Geekery Show, where I am your host, Don Komarechka. And we talk about whatever happened to have been in the news roughly in the past week or so. And of course, we're going to go back to some other stuff that we might have missed during the time that we were off the air. But uh, this one was kind of interesting. And story number one is a story in two or three parts, depending on how you want to slice into it. Uh, But before we get into that... Um, I want to introduce my guest, who I think the last time you were on this podcast was back over 100 episodes ago. Yeah, so Brian Matias, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, sir. Perfectly. I appreciate Welcome. that. Welcome back. How are Thanks you? Thanks for having me. Like 100 episodes. I mean, I remember being on your show, and I was so grateful when you messaged me back to, to join, but I cannot believe it's been that long. And it just kind of puts into perspective how quickly time flies. Well, last time I talked to you, I was living in Canada and now That's for correct. more than two years, I have been in Bulgaria. And so greetings from the coast of the Black Sea. Thank you. And greetings from the uh, East coast of the United States and Southern Florida. Lovely. I'm sure it's much warmer there. And uh, while the climate scenario where I am is much better than it was in Canada, I'm still envious of you a little bit. Um, (laughs) So, Brian, before we get into the stories, tell people what you are up to these days, because it's been a minute. It has been a minute, even maybe even two minutes. Um, But primarily still a lot of the same stuff, uh, I assume. I don't even remember what I was doing when I was the last on your show, but I'm still photo education. That is my primary, uh, I guess, business, so to speak. I, uh, and I focus on helping people with, uh, Lightroom, not Lightroom classic, but about Lightroom, the whole cloud-based ecosystem. I'm fully into that. Um, and I've also, you know, Don, I've also been going very strong into mobile photography and helping people there. There's a growing number of photographers who either they are just going all mobile or they are taking mobile more seriously. And I want to make sure that there's so, at least someone there who can help serve them. So that's, well, that's what I've been My doing. pick of the week last week was the uh, the new Moment 75mm macro lens. And I've been getting some and great results with that. Don, I, let me tell you something. The post that you've been... Sh- First of all, I was so happy when I saw that just because when someone... And I don't want to go you know too far down the rabbit hole, but I genuinely believe this. When, some, when, when people see someone like you of, of your caliber who is outputting photos of that kind of quality and then you show them oh this is with my iphone and it's a 15 pro max correct that's correct correct with and you're augmenting it with a moment macro lens um that has a it's it's we're moving from the it's a novelty to wow i'm i can actually do something with this legitimately so i applaud you for that well thank you and you know it's one of the reasons why for about a year Uh, I ditched my Canon EOS uh, 1DX Mark II, uh, and I switched over to a a Panasonic Lumix GX9. Now, at the time, Panasonic was interested in sponsoring me. We had a great relationship while I was in Canada. I'd love to rekindle that with anybody in Panasonic Europe, if you're listening to this. Um, But the idea was the GX9 was a tiny camera. Uh, As far as Micro Four Thirds cameras go, it was designed as in like in the compact class. Mm -hmm. And that was important to me. 
that it was small, almost pocketable with the right lens on it and a big enough pocket. Um, but it was an intimidation factor of seeing the like $7,000 camera body and lens combination with all of the big lighting gear and everything else. And if people were to see the behind the scenes images of how I were taking images with that big flagship camera, they'd be like, wow, nice gear and nice photos, but they'd get stuck on the gear. And they mm -hmm. think, oh, well, I, ca I can't do that because I don't have that kind right. of gear. So, exactly. uh, and then when it went to the, the GX9, people were like, you're, you're shooting this caliber of work with that tiny little thing? I need to pay more attention to what, the, what this guy is saying. And I think that the natural continuation of that is, is with the phone. I'm not saying that the phone is going to create the best caliber work. Um, right. I did a test recently just this past week, where I'm using a, uh, a couple of 20 times microscope objectives effectively uh, to photograph some scales of a butterfly wing. And mm -hmm. I wanted to see how close the iPhone could get on its wide angle camera at its closest focus and compare that to what I could get on the, uh, the telephoto, the 5X lens with the moment lens and to see that's the maximum macro magnification I can get in the iPhone environment today. And with the moment lens, it's about three times better, but it's still awful. Like for that scale of subject um, where I'm combining 700 images together in focus stacking uh, mm -hmm. and, and creating many, I, don't, I think there's like 100 uh, gigabytes of just temporary work images uh, before I completely finalize these images. And I'm testing the uh, Liowa high magnification setup versus Michutoyo dedicated microscope objectives. And that's going to be a thing. But I am also going to compare it to the iPhone to say, this tool is amazing. It's fantastic. But it has its limits, right? There of is course. still a time and a place for the big guns, and that's never right. going to go away. But whatever you've got in your pocket, if that could be so incredibly versatile, then that's that's what people are using. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, talking about uh, macro and new products and all this stuff, we had CES come and go very recently, and it really didn't impress. Uh, I mean, from a professional photographer standpoint. Uh, and I guess that kind of makes sense because CES, I mean, it was, they don't like to mention what it was originally called, but it was the consumer electronic show. Just like NAB don't like to remind you that it was the National Association of Broadcasters. Those are forbidden terms now. Um, yes. But uh, so I looked at the announcements <laughs> relating to photography and Panasonic announced the Lumix S 100 millimeter macro lens, which I'm keen to get my hands on. Uh, I mean, that's right in my wheelhouse and I'm shooting with those cameras. So that that's good for me, but that's a, that's a niche. Um, Samsung announced the, uh, S 24, uh, the galaxy AI powered, uh, smartphones in all of their different flavors, which I think was the more consumer end of things and was going to grab the attention of the most individuals uh, that are looking to upgrade or get into something new. And I looked at their tech on Petapixel. Uh, my good friends, uh, Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake did a pretty lengthy video detailing all of the tech within that. And I liked some of the stuff that if they are going to, you know, completely uh, utilize the AI engine, then it's going to put a little watermark on it stating that, you know, reality has been altered in some way, even if you can just crop that out. They're they're trying, they're trying even without legislation to that end. And so kudos to, uh, to Samsung for that. Uh, and if you want a full rundown on the uh, Galaxy S24s, then 
watch that video. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes that you'll be able to go and, uh, and clue into exactly how that goes. Um, but beyond that, like in the CES bubble directly, nothing really hit my interest. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you, Don. Like, usually I'm, I'm all excited about CES because you're just coming out of the holiday season <laughs> and on one hand, your pro- your wallet's probably super fatigued from you know spending money, but then just a week into the new year, you see all of these manufacturers talking about the things that you know you have probably a few weeks to a few months for your wallet to recover so that you can start buying. And <clears throat> I agree with you. Um, I am. I've never. No, no. Let me rephrase it. I used to be really kind of obsessed about the whole cross-platform developments between Apple and Android devices like Samsung and Sony. And, you know, I, uh, but, but lately I've just kind of, for my own <laughs> mental health, I've just kind of stuck with what Apple's doing. And to that end, there was that one announcement. It wasn't even, a, it was more of a, it was an announcement to announce when you can pre-order something and when you'll receive it. And that is the, the Apple vision pro. If I remember correctly, Apple announced the date that you can pre-order, which was just this past Friday. Um, yeah, I think it's the 2nd of February. Which is when it'll arrive. Uh, but the pre-orders, I believe, were on the 19th of January. Is when right, they, so they it's still grayed out on on the website here when I pulled it up. Uh, so, I, I mean, in my location, I guess I can't, uh, I can't uh, you have to. Yet, but. Yeah, it's only for, you need a, a U.S.-based Apple ID currently. Um, right. It's not, yeah. So, like, I can pre-order right now, and and that's the thing. Like, Apple, Apple's gotten to that point. They don't need CES. They don't need to even. They don't need to do much of anything. The the press comes to them, and yeah. so. And this device, yeah. th- this is a really interesting uh, shift for Apple or for any company. Um, it's not the first time that uh, a head-mounted device has been used. I mean, we've had sure. the HTC um, uh, Vive and, and a bunch of other stuff uh, in that regard. A lot of companies, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Oculus, which I think is known by Facebook. And, Meta, uh, yeah, Quest. Th- yeah, yeah, a, a Quest. Uh, that, that's, so the, the idea of, of Apple coming into the space means that they really have to present something new and they are completely changing the experience. Um, mm-hmm. They allow people to see you and you to see other people through the display. Um, a feature that you can toggle, by the way, in the uh, introduction video, they showed somebody on a plane that basically turned off the view of the world around them so that they could just be immersed in, uh, in that environment. Um, it is the first Apple camera because it is technically a camera, we can talk about this uh, uh, angle that shoots in stereoscopic 3D and probably has some additional sensors that I don't have a technical breakdown of, but I would not be surprised if there's LiDAR depth mapping and other uh, treats and and things behind the scenes in order to improve the the effect of that. And of course, you're going to be seeing roughly uh, 4K resolution per eye. And that's an important distinction because in, uh, in stereo vision, if you have a low resolution screen, but each eye is seeing its own view of it, the overlap of that actually increases the perception of resolution. And so if we're already starting at the base level of 4K and then doing whatever mental trickery our brains do to enhance that further, it should be a, a fairly compelling device. But, 
And, and this is the big but for me. I moved to Eastern Europe to get away from big technology and virtual stuff. And, and this seems like the haven of those that would be living in an urban jungle. Right. And uh, this would possibly allow them to escape that, you know, one bedroom apartment uh, in Manhattan to to discover something a little bit different. And, and that's that's one, uh, you know, shift of, of reality. Other people will completely go away from this idea of uh, becoming more and more intertwined with your technology and making it more a part of your ethos, for lack of a better term. And I think that's going to be the struggle with this. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like right now, those who have pre-ordered it, and, and I, I, this was one of the first Apple devices that I actually passed on pre-ordering. Um, this is a single player device. Because um, e- even when you, when you see Apple's marketing, almost every use case involves basically insulating the user. It's just the user and, and how they consume or they you know, try to be productive. Um, Like I can tell you for a fact, if I sat down in the living room and, you know, every, every year we watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the extended version. If I were to put on my Apple vision pro and, and, you know, use share play because it'll, or it'll play on the Apple TV my wife would be like, get out of here. We're not doing this. I'm not doing this with you. <laughs> um, exactly. And I wouldn't, bl- yeah. Yeah. So th- th- this becomes like, we've got a, a nice uh, Sony 65 inch TV, right? Right. Uh, OLED tech, beautiful tech. And yeah, this this thing can, it could give me a hundred inch TV that looks just as good, but only for me. Uh, Correct. And it's, it's not a social, I can't see people getting down and everybody bringing their uh, Apple Visions to a party and sitting down to watch the Super Bowl. I, I don't think that this is a communal device. Um, that no, doesn't, even doesn't mean it, it doesn't have a place, but it's not going to, it's not going to fit into my lifestyle, at least not right now. Well, correct. And, and it does have that share play capability. Like you can have two people with vision pro sync up, but you're hundred, it just, it's kind of like the, it's, it's like a, 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 a black mirror episode coming to life you know, it's this weird twilight zone thing. And I'm not, listen, I, 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 I'm all for it. I'm not trying to poo poo it. I know I sound like I am. I would love to, to try it. I think it's right now it's priced in such a way that we, that the, those who pre-ordered it are basically doing, um, R and D for Apple in, in real time. Uh, yeah, with the pricing by the way is $3,500 us for the, the starting. Lowest. The, the, yeah, the entry level, and that's 256 gigabytes. If this is going to be a media consumption device and creation device, you probably don't want that. You're going to want to go at least to the 512, which is 3,700, and then the one terabyte is available at uh, 3,900, plus any uh, adjustive optics that you might need for your personal vision, um, and who knows what other accessories they might figure out to sell along plus the way. Plus $500 for Apple Care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so I, I feel like this is uh, this is a really great moment, and Apple is mm-hmm. taking a risk. But what I can see is this opening a number of other doors to influence the existing Apple ecosystem 
to embrace the kind of content and experience that you're going to get in Apple Vision. And one thing that has existed for a while, I was a fan of the red hydrogen using glassless 3D tech uh, that has gone through a number of iterations now. And uh, there's different methodologies for that. The company that made that technology, Leia, has produced two, I believe, tablets. I had the first one. There's a new one out now. Uh, And that technology is going to grow, I believe, to a point where maybe in the next flagship Apple phone, you will have the option to have a glassless 3D display. It's going to take somebody like Apple or Samsung or Google with their Pixel, uh, and it's more likely Apple because Apple's creating this uh, three-dimensional content uh, creation consumption device as this standalone thing. Uh, but what if what if I could take photos on the uh, on the Apple Vision and have them display in 3D on my iPhone? Right, That, I think, would be a very enticing feature for people that don't necessarily want to go all the way into that Apple Vision, but they want to have the benefits of that system in their life. And mm-hmm. I, I would fully embrace that. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my work in stereoscopic 3D. I just love it. It's such a tiny niche right now, but this could be the ticket to expand that in a way that is ubiquitous. And that's what that's been missing ever since the big uh, 3D TV craze where everything was super gimmicky and you had to wear stupid glasses, always made my ears hurt. Uh, I had been opining that the day will come and it's not here yet, but hey, a glimmer of hope. The light has turned back on at the end of the tunnel. Hey, I enjoyed it in your book and I got my little 3D glasses that came with it. And I I, I mean... We have, anytime I have family come over, I usually show that book and I, I put the glasses on. Just the, the nostalgia <laughs> factor of those glasses, um, you know, the, the little paper 3D glasses. The red, glasses, blue, and glasses. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It was just, that instantly brought me back to, uh, you know, when I was younger. Uh, and like I would go to the local 7-Eleven because there was some sort of promotion and it, you would get a pair of those 3D glasses with like your Slurpee that you bought. So I have been toying around with the idea of uh, shooting a children's book uh, that is just oh, those images. I love it. Which is such so a good fun. idea. That's yeah, such a know, good just idea. Go out and photograph bugs. You know, just the stuff that a, a young boy or girl, probably more boys if we're talking insects, but still, everybody can enjoy it. My daughter just loves looking at the stereo uh, 3D stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, there, there's, there's room for that. And I think that there's room in a growing ecosystem of content consumption that we are now making it more immersive. This is definitely a more immersive device that Apple has, has brought to the table, um, but maybe too much in a way that it takes you out of reality. I would much rather, like there was one scene in the introduction video where somebody is sitting in like a a yoga or a meditative type of a pose and leaves are floating around them in their environment and it's designed as a calming thing. I'm going to go sit out under a tree. That's that's yeah. going to be my my analog to that, uh, right. and I would find that far more interesting because a bird will fly by, and yeah. I'll, the, the bird will catch my attention. For, maybe he'll play with another bird. Maybe a cat will capture and kill the bird. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it's real, uh, and and so that that grounding in reality, I think I lose with this, even though they do try to frame it and taking pictures. Could you imagine somebody walking around a park with this thing on? Because uh, it's got stereo 3D cameras <clears throat> and their kids are playing, and they right. kind of visualize this from the perspective of the person wearing it. But pr- from a third-party perspective, you looking at this strange man with this weird thing on his head talking to children, uh, you right. might take issue with that. Yeah, I mean, and 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 there is 
on both sides, there is the, the, the only time this will become successful is when whoever it is, whether it's Apple, uh, makes it so frictionless on the content creators and especially on the content consumer side. Um, until that point, it's just going to be a Hail Mary or, you know, I wouldn't even call it a gimmick, but um, it's, it's you know, there's so much, like you said, going back to the yoga thing, I don't, I've never used this thing. I've never seen it, but I've, I've, I've read enough uh, and I've spoken with people who have used it, who are good friends, where they're, they're like, after two minutes, you will not want to use it because it's so heavy. Now, I'm not That's gonna, a first generation problem. I mean, that, that's, exactly. that's, that'll go away. We hope so. Maybe the next generation, which is more geared towards consumers, won't have as many, you know, uh, eye sensing cameras, or it won't be made with, you know, a lower quality glass. I don't know. Or maybe but, this is yeah, the beginning of the next phase of human evolution where the next generation of babies being born inherently have stronger neck muscles. You don't know. You never know. I mean, maybe that's what <laughs> Apple's going for. <laughs> Playing a little bit of Darwinism. Yeah, hey, you know, it's happened before. Um, Let's let's go into uh, the second story here. And this one is is sort of a timeless one, but it did come across the news that was happening in the last week or so. Um, A a Petapixel article on how to print photos at home. And I thought this was important to uh, make a connection between our art in the digital sense and in the print sense. And uh, there is rumors that Canon is about to be releasing a new series of printers. The Pro 1000 printer and its brethren, the Pro 2000, 4000, and 6000, I think, uh, they started to be introduced in 2016. And we had uh, the pandemic, which derailed a lot of that stuff, and then wars and such. Um, But there are uh, rumors that there will be a refresh of them all because they all use the same PF10 printhead. And if you're going to replace one, then the others are going to get a refresh. And uh, so this this means two things. This means, number one, you might be uh, looking at getting a really cheap but high-quality printer from the old generation of stuff, or you might jump in and get something brand new tech and the latest and greatest. And there is value, I believe, in printing your work yourself. Uh, Brian, where, where do you stand on this? Do, do you print much? Much. You can You can remove the word much. And make it a binary <laughs> question. Uh, do you print? I, okay. Do I print? I do not print. When I do print, it's usually, I mean, I have, well, no one will see it, but this HP Office Jet photo print, I love that they call it a photo printer. Um, <laughs> I, it, let, me, let me put it this way. I don't print, but as I get older, and this sounds so cliche, um, I find myself wanting to learn how to, how to print, you know, and print well, print effectively and either for the house here or more to, to provide as, as gifts to, to family and friends. Well, and also to clients in many ways too. You know, if I, if I had, of course. Uh, you know, if, if I had done like a, a workshop and somebody uh, submitted a really good image, I, I'd make a small print for them. Uh, I didn't do this all right. the time, but, right. you know, it would be a great way. It's like, okay, well, the printer is sitting there. Big printers shouldn't sit there for a long time. They should run once in a while. So I would print off some small prints. Maybe it's family photos or whatever it is. 
just to keep things going because the last thing you want is to pay to replace a print head. That PF10 print head I said uh, was in all those printers. That costs over $700 on B&H right now for just the print head. Wow. Um, so it can get somewhat expensive, but there is really no substitute. Uh, I, I've ordered prints from big companies and they've they've turned out great. But I've also had, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity of a friend to send me a platinum palladium print of one of my images. And the, the look and the feel and the material was just completely different. I, I couldn't even recreate that look and feel on my own printer. And so um, I feel like this is a, it, it's not a dying art, but it's one that is becoming more and more um, seldomly personally involved. I have had a lot of people say, you know, just put your stuff up on, you know, fine art America. And I, I could, I, I could, especially now where I am in Eastern Europe, it's difficult for me to mail prints to people. Um, the chances that it survives the postal system, well, um, that's an issue, but also the cost in doing so. I, I think that if there is a refresh on these printers, I'm, I might look at a Canon 24-inch model. Um, that would be at a bro, the, uh, the, the Pro 2000. I think that was the, the size of that. I had a 44-inch model back in Canada, and that was really useful. When I did art shows, I would print like 30 by 40-inch canvases, and somebody would buy it, but somebody else would want the same artwork at the same size, and I only had the one, and I could rush home in a level of exhaustion, print a new canvas, coat that canvas it has to dry overnight stretch it the next day and that person has just paid me another 565 dollars for the privilege and the only way that i would have been able to do that is if i could do it myself because nobody else is going to be able to turn it around that quickly uh, sure. and into those kind of custom sizes so there, there's value in in printing and there's a couple of quick tips that that i'd like to to share about about printing number one is calibration um I worked for Black's Photography, which was a camera store, but uh, they they were known for their printing, and they had the the Fuji Frontier system, which was a really cool hybrid of it would use lasers to expose the image on photosensitive paper, and then pass that through actual chemicals to generate an image. So it used traditional photo, uh, you know, printmaking chemistry, but it used a digital source uh, for for the image creation, which was a lot of fun. Um, but we had uh, where we were, there were ski hills and what have you. And if we didn't uh, correct the images, pe and people would tell us, "Oh, don't don't correct the images. We we don't want you to touch them. We don't want you to mess with them." And so I I did that. I didn't touch them, and the customer came back and said, "All of my images are dark. Why why are they all so dark?" It's like, well, you're photographing you know, a bunch of people on snow, your camera might not be smart enough to choose the proper exposure because it thinks they're all overexposed. It's like, no, 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 this never happens before. Every time it's always perfect. It's like, well, okay, um, I'll, I'll fix that for you. And I did. And my manager was giggling off in the corner. And uh, she said, okay, this, this is Mrs. So-and-so. She always says, don't correct her images always correct her images and don't tell her that you've done so and they will come out fine. So uh, a, a simple trick that I like to employ, uh, employ is in, in Photoshop, uh, when you're doing the, in Lightroom too, I mean, wh whatever you're choosing as the color of the mat that's around the image, change it to white. That will give you a white point and more often than not, your image inherently will just jump out at you as being too dark. 
This is also true of when I'm formatting things for the web and I know the image is going to be scrolling through on a white page on social media or something. It's a, it's a nice final step to just adjust that brightness to that end. Um, but then you got to look at the shadows too. And with shadows, it depends on the ki kind of paper that you're using. And in almost every scenario, the shadows are too dark. They will show detail on a screen. They will become muddy in print. And the amount that you raise the shadows depends on the kind of paper that you're using. Uh, the matter of the paper uh, or material, the more you've got to raise them up because the ink will bleed into itself and, and you'll start losing details. The glossier stuff, you don't have to do as, as much of that. Um, and of course, calibrate your screen, make sure it's the proper brightness, calibrate your printer. You don't have to do that. If you're doing it yourself, you really should uh, because a professional lab is going to be taking those steps as well. And you could make a, a small test print and say, eh, I'm going to adjust the colors on this because I don't like it. Oh, I like that finally, or make a, an array. And I've I did this before. I had the professional equipment of like nine images with some various adjustments. And I pick one of the nine that ends up looking the best in order to print the full version of it and save that file in a folder labeled to print so that I have that version of it set aside specifically uh, when another version has to be made. Um, but yeah, uh, Brian, you should uh, take a look at uh, some of these Canon printers. I, I don't, I don't think it's for everybody, but especially if you have the potential to give your artwork as gifts and to physically mm -hmm. sign it, that means a lot more than something that came from Walmart. A hundred percent. And there are a few things that jump at me that have always kind of served as not sticking points, but you know, the first one is, so I'm red, green, colorblind. And so, and color has always been one of those things that I edit my photos to the point where I think they look good. And I used to be pretty obsessive over calibrating. I would calibrate my displays every quarter. I had a reminder to do it. I used a, what was then called X-Rite Photo. Um, I won display pro just a small little calibrator. Now it's Colorado. calibrate. It is calibrate. Correct. And so, um, I always said that, well, if I calibrate my displays and I, then at least I know that whatever I'm working with is calibrated for whatever the that color space and, and the display. And I edit to however I want. And that's that. Um, I never took the additional dimension of printing, which I always, you know, you could soft proof and, you know, there you go. However, I also moved to Lightroom from Classic. And so Lightroom has no print support at all. There's not even file print. Right. With that said, um, I was, um, do you know Glenn Dewis? No, I don't. Glenn is a phenomenal photo educator, photographer, and he's, he's doing a lot with printing. He's doing a new printing course. And he did this live stream a couple of weeks ago basically similar to, to what you're talking about in terms of printing with Lightroom and Photoshop versus using the, the software that the manufacturer, so Canon or, or Epson pro provides. And, and so when, I never even considered that, to be honest. That just goes to show you of how little printing ever um, was in my zeitgeist. Um, 
but now it's funny how these things work. They come in, 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 in you know how like what you do like a, a word bubble of things and there are these big words that appear all of a sudden lately printing is becoming much more in my face to the point where I actually am seriously considering. And, and I'm, that's why apropos of this conversation, like that's why I'm like, I was talking to Ashley, like maybe we should get like a, a nice printer and, and look at that. Yeah. And there, there's a, there's a number of things to consider uh, with printers. You want to make sure that the print head is replaceable. Uh, okay. Otherwise, you've got to replace the entire printer itself, which in some cases, the model has upgraded and maybe that's a worthwhile endeavor anyhow, but a replaceable user serviceable parts, uh, having the print head being one of those is generally a good thing. Uh, by the way, most um, uh, like office printers that use uh, uh, ink, like inkjet, not the, uh, the laser stuff, um, the print head is in the cartridge. And so whenever right. you replace the cartridge, you're replacing the print head so that they don't get clogged and you don't have issues. But if you have, like I've got on my desk, one of those uh, refillable tank printers. And at some point I'm going to like load in a hundred or $200 worth of ink into that thing. And then the print head is going to go and there's no replacing the print head because they didn't make them that way. So the replaceable right. print head is, is going to be a, a useful thing. Uh <sighs> Epson used to, and I think this is not the case anymore, but they used to have the same uh, print head feed line for matte black or gloss black. So when you switched from matte to glossy paper, it would have to completely drain out the line and refill oh. it with the new ink. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge waste of money uh, for absolutely no reason. You could have engineered it differently. Everybody else did. So make sure none of those shenanigans are happening behind the scenes. Um, and you might want to look to see if the printer has a, uh, a gloss ink. Because if you could imagine, if you've got a fairly glossy paper and you put ink on top of it, where the ink is... If there's part of the image that's very bright, like a snowy scene, or like, for example, my snowflakes, um, then uh, you would have a gloss differential because no ink would be applied on those areas versus right. the gloss will be diminished where the ink is the heaviest. And that you might want to have control over. So there are a number of printers that will have a gloss quote unquote color that will just put a clear coat over top of it to remove any gloss differential as it goes. So there's that a lot of sense. things to consider. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the medium, the paper that you use is, is a huge one. My favorite while I was printing in Canada was uh, from Hanamule, the mm -hmm. Photoreg Metallic. And I've used a lot of their uh, papers in the past. And this was a new product uh, at the time a few years ago. And metallic papers for me, they could be gimmicky if they're just too metallic. Because then the media itself stands out more than the artwork that it's printed. Right. On. But the, the media was subtle and there was a subtle texture to it. But the thing with metallic stuff is it's often non-archival. And I've got a, it's not a bulletproof test to check uh, archival quality of paper. But if you have an ultraviolet flashlight, I have many. Uh, you might have none, but they are useful in photography stuff and they're useful for choosing printer paper. Uh, printer paper will often use optical brightening agents, OBAs. And uh, what these are is th they basically fluoresce. So if you take a, uh, it's still winter in a lot of the world, if you were to take a piece of your copy paper out of your desk printer and place it outside on the snow, you'll notice that it's slightly blue. Uh, 
And the reason for that is it has agents within the paper that uh, fluoresce under uh, ultraviolet light, which the sun produces, and it makes the paper appear brighter than it would otherwise. The thing is, um, optical brightening agents, they can skew colors, obviously, in the scenario of just standard copy paper can turn bluish uh, in different lighting conditions, but the fluorescent components will often break down over time and they're non-archival. Um, so the the test for me was to take a an ultraviolet flashlight and shine it on the paper and the less it fluoresced the better and that hanamule photoreg metallic paper did not fluoresce on the front or the back um and now that's that's not the only metric for whether or not it's archival but it is a big one um so you know use that as another little tip of knowledge when it comes for for printing and selecting the materials therein Sure. And that's, I, I feel like that's also something, maybe people obviously in the print world understand the importance of paper. Whereas again, if you were to go to someone in my caliber of printing, where I mentioned how I just have this, this, what is this HP office jet printer, and I'm just going to Staples and buying a ream of paper. And granted, I have actually like HP, like five by seven or four by four by six. You and you've know, never used them. They're, they're still sealed in the box, right? Basically correct. They're basically <laughs> just, I have them there, but you reminded me because my wife, ha she actually, she does a, a watercolor uh, stuff. Like she sells watercolor courses and stuff. She has a relationship with Hanamula. As soon as you said that, that's where it just kind of popped in my head. But for her, that's more watercolor paper meant to absorb um, water and paint. And so it just goes to show you how important it is. Something I never considered, not just the printer, not just the, 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 the ink or the pigment, but also the, the paper that you print on it. It, it sounds obvious, but this is the, the stuff that a printer novice needs to, to understand if they want to, I think, take printing seriously, you know, not, not to intimate that like someone can't take printing seriously otherwise but it's the same thing with a with a camera and the lens and a filter and everything i mean there's exactly you, you throw a filter on you're going to change the look of everything uh correct. you know you, you can go out and buy a tripod or you can go out and buy tripod legs a separate tripod head um separate mounting systems uh and all of these things that allow you to create a unique experience to yourself it's it's available in all realms of photography um and uh, one other recommendation for paper is a company, I think out of, based out of California, called Breathing Color, and they make the live canvas, spelled L-Y-V-E. And I used a lot of canvas, and I did a lot of canvas production over the years. Um, don't get the cheap stuff, folks. Get the good stuff, and that's the best one that I have been able to discover over a lot of trial and error. Yeah, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's out there. Uh, I Honestly, I'd wait. 2024 is going to be the year. It's going to be the year of that big printer refresh. I just got a feel for it, and uh, and I'll I'll be jumping on board. Um, and uh, more recommendations on that as the time comes when that new printer eventually does arrive here. But uh, printing back on the radar as an antithesis to Apple's Vision Pro, which is making reality more virtual. I think it will it will force a certain percentage of the population to realize the value of tangible objects. Yes. And, and you know what? If you think about it, printing could be considered the vinyl of photography. So vinyl records, 
uh, is uh, they have been making a very steady comeback over the past several years. People are enjoying that analog experience. They, they quote, say that it's richer sounding. And I, I, I wonder if the, the photography analog is printing where everything photography has gone so digital, digital to the nth degree that taking it into a, I, I always considered the sharing of photos to be the third and final stage of a photo. One being the, the composition and execution, the second being the, the editing process or the post-processing workflow, and the third being the sharing. But my sharing has always been digital social media or website or something like that. But there is something to be said, Don, to, you know, to about the, the physical tactile component of sharing a photo. Yep. Uh, I completely agree. Other people will take it into the, um, uh, the chemical realm. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, it was a Doug K made me the platinum palladium print. And, um, I, I, I would want to learn that if if I had uh, the time and technology and wherewithal to go through the level of making all of those mistakes again and again. Um, and it's really it's one of my most valuable prints. It's still in storage in Canada, um, but it is uh, I, that's one of the only uh, prints that I made sure was was at my parents' place in a temperature controlled environment because I, I value it and I value because it's a tangible object that was difficult to create. Um, so anyhow, let, let's uh, let's go into our next story. But before we do, I want to know, Brian, where people can find you online. Oh, sure. Uh, it's just my website, which is my surname. So Matias.com, which is M-A-T-I-A-S-H.com. That's uh, where I have my my newsletter, my the course, which I have, which is called Lightroom Everywhere, which you can look, learn more about and all of my articles. And of course, you're on all the social medias, uh, and we'll make yep. sure that the links to them, as well as your website, uh, are in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com, so everybody can keep in touch with Brian and his his happenings, his comings and goings. Um, you you were you were once part of a podcast as well. Are you doing much podcasting besides when you're jumping on this? Um, n- no, yes, and no, yes. I it was the No Name Photo Show with our friend uh, Sharky James. Uh, that we did for a year and a half, I would say. Um, I, w- I've been kind of decide- debating that y- the fact that you know your your new season of shows kind of I- I inspires me, and of course, podcasting seems to be one of the most popular things. However, what I think I want to do, invest more time in, is is the live stream slash you can call it a video podcast um, avenue. And so that's kind of what um, I think I want to focus on. I don't know yet, Don, and, yeah. and I would love to talk to you more about that because sure. I'm not exactly uh, sure. You know, my my good friend uh, Steve Brazel, who was in the last episode, uh, we used to do a, a live photo critique session, and we would bring in uh, I can't, it's like 19 images. I think I don't know why we settled on 19, but um, it was, uh, and then we would have a roundtable discussion with uh, uh, me uh, and Steve and one other person. And we would invite the audience to comment live, and we would bring those comments into that production. Time zones being what they are right now, with Steve and I being a 10-hour time difference apart, it's hard to get a live audience somewhere in between that. 
Um, but uh, I think I, I'm going to bug Steve. I, I want to try to do that again. Uh, anybody listening yeah, to this should. podcast, uh, go go bug Steve. Um, I'm sure we, we could find some way to, to make that work again. As for myself, uh, you can find me at doncom.ca, at photogeekweekly.com, and at Princeton Photo Workshop, where uh, through the month of February, from February 3rd to the 24th, I have a macro photography course. It's completely virtual online, but it is fully interactive. Um, so it's done live. There is a lecture component. But there is also a, an assignment and a critical review of that assignment at the beginning of every next session. And that's always incredibly valuable to get that kind of feedback. Uh, you know, and you get to see the feedback from everybody else as well. And I throw in some live demos whenever possible so that you can see me make all of the mistakes that you think I don't make. But I make them too. Uh, it's part of the process. And so you get... You get to see the entire experience as it comes through, even though I've done it many times before. I, it's not easy. Um, I, just, I show you the finished product. I don't show you the 10 mistakes that I made along the way. Sometimes I do, but you'll get to see them in real time. Right. All right. So that is, uh, I'll put that at the top of the show notes too, because that's coming up. That's very timely. Uh, that's uh, in about a week and a half or so. The next story I think is interesting, and there's room for some debate on this one. Um, Another Petapixel article, photographer sues Detroit Lions for using his photo for NFL star's statue. And so the Detroit Lions uh, are using a photograph of uh, football star Barry Sanders, uh, and they're using that image in multiple contexts uh, to create the exact look and feel of this statue. Now, without me going too far into this, I know you might not have had too much time with the show notes, Brian, to, to get your head around it, but what were your initial thoughts? Um, I, that was the thing. I've gotten to this point with these kinds of stories where I, I need to really dive deep because almost always there's a, not a gotcha, but there's like, oh, okay. Um, it's not actually just simply the NFL. The way that the the, um, the headline of the article reads, it's almost like it's it's like, well, the NFL, this multi multi billion dollar organization, stole some, you know, the little guy's photographer, you know, like a photographer's, and and created a statue and and didn't compensate him or purchase the appropriate licensing, um, and so I I always kind of admittedly you can call it just this this old man's cynicism i take things everything i take everything with a grain of salt but at the same time you know if it was a legitimate either oversight because that's that's the thing i want to get to your take too in in a lot of these situations you could are a lot of times the organization is outsourcing that to another agency and the agency could you know, maybe however they try to appropriate the art, they don't do it the, the right way, but it always kind of falls onto the onus of the, 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 the client organization. So I don't know. I I'm kind of on the fence with this one. So for me, uh, it's tricky. The, the photographer Alan Key, um, is, uh, is making these, these claims that and it's a tough claim to make because you have to pass the burden that they are legitimately using the image in order to sculpt the statue. And it's not just a coincidence because it's just the pose of a particular person. However, the photograph is very iconic. The pose is uh, very, I don't want to say unnatural, but dynamic in a way that 
wouldn't have been able to have existed without the photograph being present. And then furthermore, there's a behind the scenes video of the making of the sculpture where they deliberately state they're trying to recreate the photograph. So, okay, you probably pass that bar. Uh, and, and now you have to look at the idea of, well, is creating a sculpture, a three-dimensional object in a different medium, the same as taking a photograph and the photograph, you know, you own the copyright to the artwork, but not necessarily the likeness of the person. And then they are using the likeness of the person to create the sculpture and your photography is in there somewhere, but is copyright lost in that process? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Key had admitted that he had uploaded the photograph, uh, where was it, to the uh, NFL Photos, which was a licensing agency uh, that was created and owned by the NFL. Now, that mm -hmm. agency no longer exists and so, again, this is an unknown for me because who knows what contract he signed, what licensing agreements there were for the NFL themselves to use content that was uploaded to this self-owned entity because it's not being sub-licensed to anybody else uh, in this exact context. If it's the if it's the NFL that is uh, producing this particular, uh, it's actually not the NFL; it's the Detroit Lions. But uh, one can argue that there is some strong connection between the two without seeing it in legal writing. Uh, I don't want to bark up that particular tree necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's also suing a uh, toy manufacturer um, because the, uh, the image, and I'm just going to try to pull it up here because I, I, I had it earlier and I lost it. It's a uh, McFarland toy store and they've got a, uh, a plastic, I don't want to call him an action figure because I don't think the arms are posable. And, and I think he's stuck in that pose, um, yeah. but it's, but it's the same pose. Right. Uh, and I, I think that there was an issue with Getty Images never giving them consent to resubmit his photo for licensing for McFarland Toys to be profiting off of it because then Getty sold it. But again, this all gets into the contract of how did Getty get the ability to do that from a company that no longer exists and so on and so forth when the rules might have changed. Uh, that That's going into the weeds. But we've got a, an interesting lawsuit with the conversion of a photograph into a three-dimensional object. And I think that's going to be even more important as time goes on. This photograph was not a recent capture. It was captured, uh, I think it was in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. It said somewhere in the article. Um, but uh, we talked about spatial, uh, you know, we got LiDAR on our phones. They can create depth maps of things. Uh, the the Apple Vision is going to have stereoscopic cameras, press other stuff to make a 3d model part of the art creation process and embedded into the quote unquote photograph. So that information is collected then by the camera, regardless of the photographer's intent. And one could argue that a 3d model could be very easily made from that additional information captured simply by pressing the button based on the technology used to create the image and not the intent of the photographer. Strange place to be. Um, and I'm not sure there, I don't believe there's any precedent for this type of thing in, in the legal space, but, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm excited. I, I wish you luck in your lawsuit. Yeah, I, 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 for just to, to, you know, wrap it up, I, I agree with you. I think this is something I, now that I'm aware of it, I'm, I'm very keen about 
un- learning how it kind of rolls out because um, it could, I mean, the, the toy I was going to, th- I was thinking more, yes, a statue is, that's like a one of a kind thing. But then I was like, I, my mind went to 3d printers uh, and just printing your own figures. But then I saw what you saw with McFarland toys and McFarland toys is a huge company. Um, they make all kinds of figures for all kinds of different franchises. So um, yeah, the, the thing for me is taking a two dimensional, in this case here, two dimensional image and how does that translate the rights that, you know, into, cause say what you will, it, it might have the impression of, of a three, three dimensional uh, moment, but it's still a two dimensional uh, image and it's right. being translated one into three dimensions and two into completely different medium using whatever the material you know, was for the statue. So I'm, I'm, I'm into this. I want to see there, what there was, uh, there was a, a case in the United States, I think with the U S postal service, um, where they were sued by, uh, a sculptor because a photograph that they used, um, was a photograph of a sculpture that the sculptor owned the copyright to and the photographer didn't, the photographer had the right to their image, but not the contents completely therein. And so this could be a full circle example. Whereas if uh, Alan Key owns the copyright to the image, and then somebody makes a sculpture of the image, and then somebody photographs the sculpture, are they in violation of Alan Key's copyright? Um, I don't know, man. (laughs) It's it's copyright inception. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Okay. Well, we'll leave that one there. We, uh, you know, just put a pin in that and come back to it sure. at some point uh, in in the future when there's more information on it. The final story bothers me. Um, I always put mm-hmm. like something less techy as the final story. It could be goofy. In this case, it's uh, depressing, uh, infuriating. I think would be a better word. Also from Petapixel, hunters posed as nature photographers to illegally take deer. Now, the word take is a bit of a misnomer, uh, uh, kill, to hunt and kill uh, deer in places where they were not allowed to do so. So two hunters have pled guilty to illegally hunting deer after it was discovered uh, that they had posed as nature photographers online to find the location of mature bucks. And so um, not only were they looking at photographers' social media pages, um, but, uh, Zorda and Butler, these two guys, uh, Zorda went so far as to create a fictitious Facebook profile posing as a female nature photographer, female also, right? Uh, and so I, I don't know what they're doing here to like try to catfish photographers into providing information, uh, as to the whereabouts of, you know, the, 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 the great, beautiful, majestic creatures that are supposed to be completely safe in those environments. And Zorda used the fake account to reach out to other photographers in a bid to learn the locations of mature urban bucks so that he could poach them. And uh, <clears throat> before we talk about what happened at the end of all that, what do you think of this scenario? I mean, I think it's so sinister. It's, it's just, it's so, it, it defiles the 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 nature of both um wildlife photography and hunting you know whatever i i'm not i am not uh, a hunter i've never hunted in my life um i i I don't you know it is what it is i know there are plenty of hunters who do it legally and within whatever the 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 rules are 
but when you kind of defile the, the the kind of sanctity of both it's just it's just so gross um yeah and so this that's, was in that's upstate m- new york by the way it was close yep. to buffalo um and uh and so i mean they were caught and that's why we're yep. we're learning about this right now otherwise this would have gone uh undiscovered the pair had their hunting licenses revoked for five years great should have been longer i think uh and they were ordered to should pay have been one thousand yeah, uh, one thousand and seventy-five dollar uh, fines and surcharges after they pled guilty to illegally taking white-tailed deer. Uh, police added that other individuals were implicated in the warrants and charges are pending. So it's not just these two individuals. Which, by the way, they went to great lengths to conceal what they were doing. They hollowed out walking sticks to put arrows inside because they were not firing with, uh, with guns that would be obviously heard. Um, they were using, uh, silent weapons, uh, as in like a bow and arrow. I, I'm not sure if somebody was using, um, a, a crossbow or anything else, but they weren't using guns. And, uh, yeah, it pisses me off. Um, yeah, I, I'm um, not a hunter either. Uh, I've, I've traveled with hunters. My, my uncle is a hunter lived in the Yukon for a long time. And in, uh, 2012 and 2014, I went up there with their hunting party. They were doing their things. They had their goals. I had mine and I documented their actions and they were incredibly respectful to the animals. And I honestly felt better about eating that meat than I did from something that I could get up at the local supermarket. And I have no idea the quality of life of that creature. Uh, whereas a completely wild, uh, bull moose has been, uh, taken after a life of freedom and, uh, has been done so in the most humane way possible in the wild. Anyhow, it's not like you can get right up close to them and and put a a, a bolt gun through their head, uh, like they do in the slaughterhouses, which I guess is the, the best, um, best end for those poor animals. I, I eat meat. I, I don't have any qualms about it. I'm not a vegetarian, but uh, Correct. Same. The, the more, the more humane that the animals live, the better I feel. And so I have no problem with hunting when hunting is allowed. And when it's not, there are a ton of places in the United States, probably places in New York state where you could have done this legitimately. Uh, sinister was the word you used earlier. And I'd have to agree with that one. Yeah. And, 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 and just on the flip side, you know, bringing it to the photography perspective, it says here in the article, it was found that the hunters conspired with a large group of poachers who scoured social media posts made by wildlife photographers to target bucks in areas where hunting is banned. They also created fictitious Facebook profiles, like you said, posing as a female nature photographer. And so it's, it, you, this is, this story is akin or analogous to the whole, um, sharing geotagged metadata when you post your photos online. Um, It's, it really makes it difficult. And it, it it really turns me off as well to, to just sharing photos, like sharing a snowflake photo will impact no animals. It's just not possible. And so that's great. But it's, it, you know, these photographers are, I'm sure, are doing it with the best of intentions. They just, they love animals. They are fo- doing, going to great lengths to, to photograph them and, and present them in a beautiful way. And to see these, these, these hunters kind of manipulate that, it, it's, it's really tragic. And it, if I were a wildlife photographer, it would make me kind of second guess. It would taint my experience. I guess is the best way to put it. You know, I've taken to, uh, you know, when I upload images to Flickr now, 
unless it's mm-hmm. like a photograph of a, a waterfall or something, um, I turn the geolocation information onto private. I, I mm-hmm. leave it there, but only I can see it. And if I have friends that I, that I know are friends and not brand new acquaintances, then I, I might not allow them to, to get in on that either. Um, so yeah, be mindful, I guess, is the, is the lesson that not everybody out there is, is what it seems. And it's the first time I've seen something like this and had to bring it onto everybody's radar as the final mm-hmm. story. Now let's get into the final part of this podcast and I uh, hope you got time for it, Brian, uh, the picks sure. of the week. Uh, what do you have uh, as something that we should all take a closer look at? What I have is um, a set of filters by a company called Maven. So it's called Maven Filters. And the reason why I love them is two reasons. One, they are magnetic. Everyone seems to be really kind of enjoying magnetic filters. And I'm so happy that they're becoming more popular and more capable. But the second reason why I love them, well, third reason. Second reason is on a recent trip in Utah, I went iPhone only and I was using a, I didn't have the Maven filters at the time. I had a format high-tech circular polarizer and I was taking several vertical shots that I was going to stitch as a pano with the polarizer on. And I was shooting in raw, not, not pro raw, but just regular raw. And I, I can actually send you this image if you, if you're interested, Don, each one of the photos has this very weird, consistent vertical banding. And so it ruined the photos. That sucks. Um, it, that was really unfortunate because I was excited for that pano at, at Goblin Valley State Park. It was just really cool. And so Maven Filters sent me the, this kit. And I was happy to to say that in my tests, I, I see no such um, issue. The reason why I bring like nice up filters. Um, they're beautiful. You know, and but uh, I also want to mention specifically, and you made a, a note of this as well, um, they're doing a Kickstarter of the Wave 2 of filters. So uh, a, a new series of filters. It is, uh, they, they've raised, like in Canadian dollars, it's over half a million that I'm seeing right here. Uh, and it's also stating three days to go as we record this. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get this podcast out right away to make sure that anybody that is listening to this can go in and possibly get some juicy deals on these particular filters as well. There you go. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of them. I, and I, I, you don't think of filters as something that can be innovated on, but you, check them out. What, what they're doing is truly innovative. The problem for me though, uh, and, and they, they look fantastic, but I just, sure. I looked inside my, my drawer and I'm like, I, I, I have stacks. I have stacks <laughs> of filters and you know, you can't, you listening can't see this, but I have stacks of filters, and this jiggling sound you hear is a uh, a filter wallet that is just completely full. Of which I have more filter wallets too. I have filters. I have so many filters. I have them all. To get into a system like this, I would have to repurchase stuff that I already have for the convenience of the magnetism. So I think this makes uh, a lot of sense for somebody that has very few filters and is looking to maybe get some of the more unique ones that they, you know, they've got some that create streaks across the image of special effects or uh, the ability to focus better on stars uh, using mm-hmm. a filter. If you don't have an infrared filter, they looks like they've got a really nice 720 nanometer infrared filter. And I've been meaning to do more of that work as well. Um, yes. Neutral density filters, linear polarizers, I'm sure they're circular polarizers. And they also yes. have, I found it on their website, a smartphone adapter with a CPL bundle. 
and it's currently on sale for $94. Uh, it says there are uh, only a few left in stock, so um, maybe they're gone by the time you hear this because I might just buy one. There but, you go. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'll have to check and see if they ship to Bulgaria. But one of the things uh, that I like, a, well, yeah, so, uh, two two things really quickly about them that I think are is really innovative. They put a lot of thought into the industrial design of the filter. So each filter, the outside, the the the, the metal ring of the filter has a different pattern and a different color. And so, for example, a three-stop neutral density filter will have three little grooves in it. Six-stop will have six, ten will have ten. The the infrared that you mentioned has this really interesting wave. Um, the, without, the linear without reading anything, you know what the filter is for. Yes, right. Exactly you don't have to right. like bring out your reading glasses to put on and read the fine print on the side exactly. of it to figure out what exactly this is. Then the other thing is, speaking of the, so if you stack the linear polarizer on top of the circular polarizer, it actually, the linear acts as a variable neutral density filter. Like there's actual uh, 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 numerics on it. You can see, you can go from anywhere from like three to five stops as you rotate it. So I think that's really innovative. And I'm glad to see linear polarizers coming back because a lot of photographers don't understand that Circular polarizers were made primarily for DSLR cameras. Um, linear is much more suitable for mirrorless and mobile photos. So maybe right. it, that's it. Was yeah. the original phase detect autofocus that had issues focusing through a linear polarizing system uh, back in the days when you first got autofocus, when Canon uh, EOS was developed, or I think there was a couple of FD lenses that had autofocus as well, and there was problems with them. So there was this mad rush to switch to circular polarizers that solved that particular problem. But if you don't have that problem, a linear polarizer might be the better choice for you. And, uh, and I think that that's something that we should be, uh, you know, made aware of. And you know what? Linear polarizers uh, are also good in, in a completely different context. Uh, you can put them in front of flashes uh, and they will have polarized light coming out. No matter which direction you flip them, it's always going to be huh. polarized light. Uh, and for artwork reproduction, if you put two flashes on 45 degree angles to the artwork, and you have uh, linear uh, polarizing filters on them in the same direction. And then you put a, a it could be a circular on, on the camera itself, doesn't have to be linear, but let's just for argument's sake, say it's a linear one and put it in the opposition to the other two polarizing filters, you will remove 100% of all reflections off of the paint of that artwork. That's brilliant. I love that. I never would have considered polarizers in front of, in front of lights. Yeah. So there, there you have it, folks. There's tons of uses for filters. That's probably why I have these stacks of damn filters. Um, there you go. <laughs> but there, there you have it. And you know what? I, I, I'm about to, to gear up to do a second edition of my macro photography book. I do a lot of typing. First thing I do, I get up in the morning with a cup of coffee. I sit at my desk and I write emails. I, uh, I you know, book writing, that's like 80,000 words plus revisions. Uh, I, I write courses. I do sometimes long form emails to friends. I do a lot of typing. And there is something to be said for the tactile experience of a, mechan a mechanical keyboard. But I've kicked it up a notch this year when I discovered that a guy in Croatia makes wooden keycaps that are compatible with Cherry MX keys. And I actually bought the full keyboard, though you don't have to do that. And uh, th this keyboard, it's it's like, it, it's all just like, like oh, it's wow. all wood. 
it's it's a beautiful beautiful design and uh the guy will put in whatever type of of key switches you want in there these ones are akin to a cherry mx brown so it's tactile but it's silent um and i've got some blue switches that i might try and experiment with at some point because i could take it apart and change the switches my last keyboard died because the space bar broke and it was non-replaceable uh, my previous keyboard died because the letter E stopped working and you use that letter a lot. Uh, and yeah. it was again, non-replaceable. So the thing is, it's not cheap. Um, the keycaps in Canadian dollars, uh, for the, the style that I have were $458. That's a ridiculous amount of money to pay for keys. But if you're like me and a very large part of your life is spent in front of a keyboard, then making that tactile experience more enjoyable makes you want to type more, makes you feel like you want to add more to the conversation. If anybody's ever saw a post that I add for an image, there's a page of text associated with it, and I respond to almost every comment that I can find. Typing is in my blood. Uh, just like you want to have, like you'll buy a camera, and you'll probably spend like $500 more for a camera because it feels better in your hand than a different one, even though the images that they're outputting are going to be about parallel in terms of quality. So uh, that's really a tangential thing. Uh, it's not directly photography related, but if you're a photographer, you spend time in front of a keyboard. And if you spend as much time typing as I do, um, you know, this was a Christmas present to myself. This was the big gift. And, uh, and so I, I feel like, uh, it will, it'll be a, because the keys are replaceable, it's going to be the keyboard that I never have to worry about. Like I'll, I'm never going to buy another one. Um, yeah. So there you go. Wood, actual wood. I can't remember if they were, uh, walnut or oak, but they just feel really nice and they're warm. You know, they, they just, because wood is an insulator, a thermal insulator, it's not like uh, metal or plastic that's a bit more of a conductor of heat. So it doesn't feel weird when I type on it. It doesn't feel like if I sit down first thing and the keyboard is cold, it, it, I need to warm it up. Not, not in this case. It is, it is always good to go. So. What an interesting choice. I mean, I, on YouTube, I'm obsessed with, um, like I, most of the time while we've been looking at each other, I'm actually looking at your studio space because I'm obsessed with, with setups. And one of the things that I'm seeing in no small way is this, um, custom keyboard thing. People are obsessed with building the, like the, the, the perfect custom keyboard. So I think it's great that you're, and the wood, the wood's a nice touch. It is. Uh, Literally. A, a nice material. And they've got a couple yeah. of different options. You can buy the full keyboard. You can get a number of different types of keycaps for different sized keyboards as well. If you're looking at my, my office space, you'll see a network attached storage device. You will see a cage that will eventually have an ant colony uh, in it. You'll see a stereoscopic 3D lens sitting there. Some coins that I designed from the Royal Canadian Mint. Artwork of mine behind me. A bunch of garbage over there. You know, there's some interesting lighting up there on the top, which no Nobody has seen there you go, Brian. Um, but <laughs> the space is generally not seen by people, so I'm glad that you appreciate at least some of it. I do. 
<laughs> All right. You will get to see that space if you join my macro photography workshop because it's going to be on video and you'll be able to put a picture to the words that I just described. Um, but that winds down this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And I want to thank you again, Brian, for being on this show. Uh, you can find Brian and all of his work at Matias.com. That's M A T. IASH.com. And those links to all of his social media stuff will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Again, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, If you have any feedback now that we've relaunched the uh, the show, any suggestions for guests or topics, always feel free to write in. I'm very respectful and responsive to those requests. And to those that have gotten through this one hour and 11 minutes of a recording, thank you. Now it's time to get out and shoot. 